all just get a, a treadmill in here, huh? You feel like taking a lap? Go jog for a little while on the treadmill. It is a hard act to follow. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, well, okay. It's a good thing I've got something important to read. Joshua chapter number 10 is where we are today. Uh, you guys know that we've been on this course for a few weeks now, maybe months. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter number 10. Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. And then afterward we're going to draw a few conclusions, make a little application, and hopefully be better because of it. Here we go, Joshua chapter 10. Are you there? All right, here's what God's Word says starting in verse 1. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. Stop it on pause right there for a minute. Here is uh, biblical evidence that Ai has probably, up to this point in the narrative, been downplayed through the eyes of the warriors of Israel. Remember what they said? Oh, it's just insignificant. And it seems that we get the idea that Ai was just podunk holler number four, and there was nothing to it. But now notice what it is that the writer tells us here through the eyes of the king of Jerusalem, that Ai really was, it was something to it, um, because he compares Gibeon to Ai. Now in verse number 3, Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to... Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us go attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way um, of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran 
The Lord threw large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord. Now, best to understand verses 12 through 15, not as happening in sequence and chronological order. Because if you'll notice, verse 11 kind of concludes the battle uh, scene and the fighting is over with. So I think what the author is doing is simply a Hebrew literary tactic where he's going back into that war and he's giving you insight, a snippet of a scenario that took place within the battle itself, okay? So here we go. Here's, Here's what's going on in the heat of the battle. Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves upon their enemy. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when Yahweh listened to the voice of a man for Yahweh fought for Israel. So here we go. True and false test for you today. I have several rapid fire questions that I want to put before you. And you just let me know, true or false? Question number one. Fighting is a fact of life. True or false? All right. I'll accept that answer. So on your pop quiz so far, you are uh, one for one. All right. Question number two. Since fighting is a fact of life, fighting is by God's design... Or is it by default? What is it? Alright, so far, y'all made an F. Because you've got one out of two right. (laughs) You're right. So let let me restate it like a true or false. If fighting is a fact of life, that is by design? How did you know? Because you know that the other folk got it wrong, right? All right, Uh, uh, Alyssa's a quick learner. Let me just say to you, let, let me stop right there now and explain why this question is true. That fighting is largely by design. Now hear me. There is, a, there is a, a case that can be made that it's by default, by the fallen nature of man as well. But let's look at the other side for a little while. And I think this text supports it. Here's your next true or false question. Anything worth doing or being in life is going to be a fight. True or false? All right, there you go. That's exactly right. That is true. If, if, if you think the devil's going to lay down and give you a clear shot into the life that God wants you to have, then I, I don't know if um, you fully comprehended this thing or not. So yeah, uh, anything worth doing, anything worth being is going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard no matter what it is. So uh, let's go back to this thing being by design. The entire theological concept presented in these verses is this, is that God is a warrior. Did you pick that up in verse 14? God 
fought for Israel. So God Himself is a warrior. If God is a warrior, what do you think He wants His people to be? A bunch of powder puffs? I think not. So here we can see that, yeah, it is by design. By the way, Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and here's what He says. Do not think I've come to send peace upon the earth, but I have come to send a what? A sword. A sword. So in case we're thinking that the Old Testament God is one of anger and wrath and a warrior, and the Old Testament God is a meek and mild lamb, and we have this false dichotomy, then again, we have misunderstood Scripture. Jesus Christ Himself, did you see the, the, the text that uh, Laney read this morning? When He comes back, ladies and gentlemen, how is He coming back? He's coming back as a warrior. He's coming back as a warring king and He's going to take care of business and He's going to mop up some things, is He not? So I think, yes, it is largely by design. Next true and false question. Since fighting is a fact of life, since anything worth doing or being is going to be a struggle, i.e. a fight, since this process is largely by design, true or false question, it is wise for God's people to learn to fight. True. Hey, uh, why would that not be true? Uh, have you ever noticed that when we take recruits into our military that we don't just teach them how to be soft? We teach them how to do what? We teach them modern warfare strategy and philosophy and technique and the higher you move up in our, in our military, guess what? The more you have to have and the more you have to know. You have to know more about fighting. And can I say to you that it's the same way with the people of God? Any church that puts its hand to the plow to do something that is of eternal value, listen to me, is going to have a fight on their hands, Dr. John. Am I right? Going to have a fight. Any individual believer who puts his or her hand to the plow of doing something that's going to make an eternal difference with their life, guess what? You are going to have a fight on your hands. So we must learn as believers how to fight, and we must learn how to fight fair. You see, in premarital counseling, there's this session that we normally do with those who are wanting to get married, and here's the title of it. Fighting fair. How many of you skipped that part in premarital counseling? Huh? How many of you would like to go back and, and have a refresher course in that one? But you see, that's, uh, again, what it's about. It's about learning how to fight and how to fight fairly. So, true or false? Our concept that church is just going to be pie in the sky, a primrose path, no problems, no struggles, no fights, that is a, 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 a viable, real expectation or not? It is not. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that the size of the fight which a believer encounters and the size of a fight which a church encounters is a good measure of just how effective that church or that person is. So we've got to learn a little something about fighting. And boy, there's no better place to learn about fighting than the book of Joshua. By the way, you realize that the New Testament companion and parallel book to this is Ephesians, and Ephesians has a lot to say about fighting spiritual battles as well. 
So today let's learn a little bit about fighting as we look at these first 14 verses in chapter 10 and we consider this subject. Facing the facts of the fight. Facing the facts of the fight. And you know, again, this is what we do with our military. We take Marines into the Marine Corps and we begin to teach them about fighting. When folks join the Air Force or the Army or anything else, they must learn how to fight. And somehow or another, we think that believers who are in a struggle of eternal proportions and significance can just sit around and be soft and be blindsided and be ignorant about the war that rages around us on a daily basis if we're doing something significant for the kingdom of God. So what are some of the facts of the fight that we need to be aware of? Well, this passage is replete with them and I only have time to deal with about four of them, so let's jump in real quick. What do you say? Number one, here's the first fact that I think this text exposes to us. The battle normally comes from a contradictory character. A contradictory character. Now your question is, explain, preacher, what do you mean? And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Look at the guy who is the instigator of this fight. Check out verse number 1. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard. Now let's stop right there. Do you see that name, Adonai Zedek? Here's some Hebrew 101 for you. The word Zedek in Hebrew means righteous. So that is our root word. And really, you know, you have to wonder where this came from. Well, it came from another guy who had that root word as a part of his name, and he was in Jerusalem as well in the days of Abraham. Anybody know who it was? Melchizedek. You're right. Now you're starting to see some Hebrew roots. So the question is, what does the first part of each one of these names mean? Well, Melchizedek is based on two words. Number one is the word Melech in Hebrew, which means king. So Melchizedek is a squashing of those two words, making a, a, a compound word, which means this. My king is righteous. Now, did that fit old Melchizedek? You better believe it. Because somehow or another, around all the mystery that covers him, here's what we know. Is that he was a Yahweh worshiper and Abraham even revered Melchizedek as being greater than Abraham was himself. Now, here's the same place. Here's Jerusalem. By the way, this is the first time in Hebrew Scripture that the city of Jerusalem is identified by the name Jerusalem. But remember, this is where Melchizedek was. My king is righteous was his name. So his name pointed to the righteous God, king of the universe whom he served. But now, four or five hundred years later, there's another guy who takes that same name and is probably following the same lineage, but he's a whole different breed of man. His name is Adonai Zedek, which means my Lord is righteous. Now here's why I say he's a contradictory character. Because friends, he's got a name that he don't live up to. Melchizedek lived up to his name, but Adonai Zedek does not at all live up to his name. So here's why he's a contradictory character. Number one, because he had a name, he had the name but not the heart. You may want to write this down. He had a name, but not the nature. 
You see what I'm saying? If you just heard his name, you would think, oh, this is going to be an ally. This is somebody who we can trust. Because he's saying, my Lord is righteous. That was his name. But friend, there's nothing in his nature that supports that his heart had ever truly been turned to the righteous Lord of glory. And can I say this? This is always... No, 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 let me, let me retract that. That is most of the time where the battle is going to come from. It's where it's going to come from. It's going to come from somebody who claims to have a name, but they clearly don't have the heart. It's going to come from somebody who may be playing like they are a child of God, but they really are not a child of God, and what they do, what they do prove proves that they are not a child of God. Hey, let me quote John Wilson for you right here for a minute. I, he probably getting nervous, but I, I think I can do this without his uh, approval. Here's what I've heard John Wilson say before. In all of my ministry, I've never been attacked by a heathen, an atheist, or a pagan. But son, I have paid the price dearly by folk who claim to be believers within the church of Jesus Christ. What's wrong with that? that, are, that those are people just like oh, Adonai Zedek who have a name, but they don't have a nature. They have a name, but they've never really been converted. You know what I'm saying? I mean, hey, we know a little bit about fighting. Uh, the battle's been very real for us lately. And can I say to you, the fights that we are having are come just from this nature. It comes from people who name the name of Christ. And can I tell you, that is a contradiction because the Bible tells me in very plain Greek and English and Portuguese and Hebrew that you can't hate your brother whom you have seen and make war with him and love God who you haven't seen. So just go on and take that argument somewhere else, dude. I believe God's Word rather than you. If your life don't line up with God's Word, if you're making war with brothers and sisters in Christ just because you don't agree with them fully, then son, make no mistake about it, you are deceived. This old guy here, his name was Adonai Zadok. He was a contradiction. Now notice what else we see about this guy that was a contradiction in terms, had a contradictory, he was a contradictory character. Number one, he had a name but not the heart. And number two, he was provoked by what he heard. Now check this out. Joshua has this motif all throughout the narrative of hearing. Have you noticed that? About people hearing stuff. And depending on their orientation to God, what they heard determined their response to what they had heard. Now, check it out. Look with me in verse number 1. I mean, the, the, the writer says this uh, two times here. But look at verse number 1. When Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard... Do you see that? Now again, it's just picking up on the hearing motif because it goes all the way back to chapter number 2. Here's the first time we pick up on this hearing motif. The people of Jericho heard... Now, notice, there's two responses to hearing. And these responses are going to give insight into the character of the person who's doing the hearing. There's only two responses. Write them down. I was going to put them on your listening guide, but I just ran out of room. 
So here's the first response to hearing. The first response that you'll have to hearing the true testimony of God is fear. You'll be afraid. You'll be absolutely scared to death. And you will respond out of fear. Have you ever noticed when folk get scared, when they're afraid, they do things that are irrational? They do things sometimes that are painful. Have you ever snuck up on somebody and scared them and you got more than what you bargained for because they cold-cocked you? Huh? You, you, you ever scared somebody so bad that a reflex action came and slapped you upside the head or hit you in the gut and you doubled over? Oh, to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. You'll see uh, reactions like that. That's what happens when folk get scared. Anything. It's just the nature of the beast. This week we had some cows pinned and boy, we had one old mama that she was scared. I mean, she was just scared to death. And she about cleaned house. Look, I had more of a rodeo this week at the cow sale and y'all hadn't Bonifay, I promise you. Because this old girl got scared and she cleaned house because she was scared. Once we got her out, out of the environment that was producing fear, she turned into a gentle old cow. You walk up and scratch her. But you get her scared, she's going to hurt somebody. And it's the same way with humans. We're just like cows. We're just like animals. You get scared and you're going to hurt somebody. And can I say this to you? When you hear the true testimony of God and what He's doing, if, it, if you reject that out of fear, that's one thing. I had a professor that said there's no such thing as, as intellectual atheism. Atheism is always based in morality and fear. For instance, somebody wants to reject the truth of the gospel... It's because they are afraid that this God is going to ruin their life. There are things that they don't want to give up and they're protecting their turf. So you see, that is a reaction out of fear. Now, what was it that evoked fear out of old Adonai Zadak, the old phony hypocrite who had a name that he wasn't living up to? It was hearing what God had done. And that evoked fear. But now let's go to the other side of that because here's the other thing that hearing will do. Out of all of Jericho, Jericho heard and they were afraid. It was a fear response. But there was one girl in there. What was her name? What was her response to hearing what God had done? It was faith. It's exactly right. So those are the only two possible responses to hearing the Word of God. Number one is fear. Number two is faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So here was old Adonai Zedek, a contradictory character. Which response do you think he's going to have? Naturally, he's going to have a fear response to hearing of what God is doing. So here's the first fact to the fight. Number one, it normally comes from contradictory characters. Thinking, put an S on that because... This is no coincidence. This is just from where the battle comes. Number two, the second fact of the fight is this. The battle normally comes from a confederation. A confederation. Now look with me in verses 3 through 5. 3 through 5 outlines this confederacy. And by the way, if you have any notes in your Bible, that's what it calls these five kings. A confederation that assembled themselves against the four kings of the Gibeonites. So it's a confederation. Let's put it in layman's terms. You know what they were doing? 
Here's what happens when a contradictory character has a fear response to the truth of the living God. You know what they always do? They always start talking to folk, trying to get folk to come to their side. Huh? They always want to gather a crowd so they can get more people to their side so we can attack the people of God. And that's exactly what took place here. Hey, I've got a friend who pastors a pretty significant sending church himself and this week something happened over there and you know sometimes pastors have to make decisions and hey we are bound by laws of confidentiality just like your medical provider is. Did you know that? Sometimes we just can't give all the reasons without putting ourselves in harm's way legally. So something happened and the pastor and the church staff had to take some pretty serious action. And this, this church rises up and demands to have all the actions. He says, I can't tell you. So there's four or five of them in the church. You know what they started? A dang letter writing campaign. And people in the church are receiving letters so that they can get enough people gathered to their side to rise up and oust the pastor and staff unless they tell them every little detail of what happened. Lo and behold, I ought not be saying this in case they're listening as most of the time folk do. They even sent a letter to the local TV station. The TV station picked it up. Son, listen, let's just be real and call that what it is. That's an evil confederation that attacks the people of God. And I'm sorry, but if you're doing that and you're a Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. Huh? You need to ask God to cleanse your heart of the hatred that you have for other brothers in the kingdom. Hey, here's the thing. We are not one another's enemies. We're on the same side. So why in the world does it always work like that? But you just mark it down. You let somebody get their feelings hurt and get their britches in a wad and they're going to start talking to everybody they can trying to win them over to their side. And do you know this? The, the writer of the Proverbs tells us it's just as much of a sin to listen to gossip as it is to repeat it. So tell them to quit it. I'm not listening to that type of stuff. I'm not going to be a party to this type of stuff because this is not what the people of God do. This is what the enemies do. i got to run. Facing the facts of the fight comes from a contradictory character. Number two, it normally comes from a confederation of folk who want to gather together. And that's exactly what happens in verses 3 through 5. The writer names these five kings twice just to make sure that we know who they are. But number three, the battle normally comes because of a conversion. A conversion. Check out what happened here in verse number 4. Here's what... Uh, uh, here's what Gibeon said, or no, here's what the king of, of Jerusalem said, Oh, Ananizadak, come up and come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon because it has made peace with Joshua. Do you know what Gibeon had done all of a sudden? So they had effectively switched sides. And you go ahead and switch sides and you watch, watch what the side that you were formerly affiliated with does. You know what this is a biblical picture of? It's a biblical picture of conversion. See, you used to be on the devil's side. You used to be aligned with old Adonai Zadek. But now all of a sudden, there's been a conversion. 
No longer are you, are you in alliance with Him and the powers of darkness. Now you have aligned yourself with Yahweh and His people. And can I just say to you, hey, 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 when you're born again, you can look out because the attack's going to come. Somehow or another. And the reason the attack is going to come is because you have changed allegiances. You just changed jerseys. You took off the jersey of your old team and you put on the jersey of your new team. And guess what old team's going to do to you? Tell you what they're going to do. They're going to attack you because you are now on the other team. So the battle normally comes because of a conversion. And hey guys, here's something that we need to do. We need to start helping folk who come to faith in the Lord understand that that's exactly what you did. You just switched teams. And the old team now is going to be after you. The powers of darkness have your name, they have your number, and they're going to do everything they can to make you ineffective on your new team. Oh, you can go ahead and join that new team if you want to, but we're going to try to keep you on the injured reserve list so you don't make an impact. Huh? So that's what's going to happen. Number four, notice the fourth fact to the fight that this particular passage points out. Not only does the battle come because of a conversion. Hey, listen, this is why I say, if you're a child of God, you just look out. If you're a child of God and you're not in a fight, I'd check up. <laughs> I mean, I really would. If the enemy's not after you, then you're no threat to him. Check out number next. The battle comes because of a conversion, but verses 6 through 7 tell us that the battle comes because of a commitment. A commitment. Notice, notice this. And, and here's, here's one of those times when the Hebrew piles up as many imperative verbs as it can in one sentence. It's just loaded with imperatives. Notice what the men of Gibeon, they sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal saying, here's the first imperative. Do not abandon your servants. Second imperative, come up to us quickly. Third imperative, save us. Fourth imperative, help us. Because all the kings of the Amorite that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So here's what it was. Number one, for the people of Gibeon the battle came because they had converted. But for Israel the battle came because of a strong spiritual commitment that they had just made to the people of Gideon. Now just mark my word. You make some type of spiritual commitment and that thing's going to be tested just like that to see if you meant it or not. It's going to be tested. Sometimes the enemy tests it. Sometimes the Lord tests it. I, I can remember one particular instance uh, back when I used to pastor. I was uh, out visiting a, a, a guy that had the Lord just began to work in his life. And he had told me, you know, that week some of the things that God was doing. He said, here's the thing that we're going to do now as a family. He said, we've never been serious about our finances and trusting God with our finances. So we have committed to be faithful stewards of what God gives us. And we decide that we're going to start, we're going to start with the tithe, but we're going to work up to giving and give far beyond that. So I went out to see him and I had one of my, one of my buddies with me who's a who's theologically sharp. Man, I'm telling you, this cat was on it. 
So we go up and this guy is at a ball field because his kids are playing ball. We walked up we're just talking behind a dugout and he said, you know, here's the thing. He said, since we committed to be faithful stewards with our finances, it's like all hell broke loose. He said, we committed to be faithful. And he said, I went home and my washing machine tore up. He said, the same week I had to put four new tires on my truck. He said, my wife's car broke down. He said, man, I don't know what's going on. And the old boy that was with me said, yep, that sounds just like God. (laughs) And he said, wait, what? (laughs) He said, yeah, it sounds just like God. He said, all all that's happening here is your commitment is being tested to see if you're going to be a fair weather committer or if you're going to stick with the stuff even through the hard times. You know, that's just the way it is. You make a spiritual commitment and I promise you, you're going to be tested over it. In some form or fashion, the test is coming. Let me me rephrase that. The fight is coming. So all of this commitment for Israel was because of that spiritual commitment and that covenant that they had just made with the people of Gibeon. So here's the thing. Is your word ever going to be tested? Man, listen, they gave Gibeon their word. All right, we're at peace with you. You're going to be our woodcutters and our water carriers. And all of a sudden, because they had converted and Israel had made a spiritual commitment, now the enemy comes to attack Gibeon. Gibeon. So what does Joshua do? He said, man, he could have said, that's what y'all get for tricking us. Fend for yourself. Never entered his mind. They got up, and what does the text say they did? They marched all night long. Now how would you like to march all night long, get there at daybreak, and have to fight all day long? Were these guys tough or what? Huh? I mean, they weren't weenies, were they? By any stretch of the imagination. This was Joshua's Navy SEALs. This was Joshua's Army Recon and Rangers. Uh, These were the tough guys, son. But they didn't blink at it. Hey, somebody to whom we made a spiritual commitment's in trouble, I'm there. In fact, uh, the fight is, anytime we make a spiritual commitment, it's going to be a fight. Now check it out. Notice number next. Now here's why I say fighting is sometimes beneficial. Because notice the Lord's response. Here's the good fact of the fight. The battle brings confirmation. Hey, can I say to you, you will never be stronger than when you go through the battle and you see God respond on your behalf. So it does something for your faith. Now look, nobody likes to go through battles. But that's why I just came to the conclusion last week. Hey, if these battles through which we are going, makes us stronger than bring them on, Daddy. Because I'll tell you, it's not going to be a weak church that's going to survive in the future. It's going to be battle-tested churches that know the fight they're up against and know how to fight fairly and know how to walk in victory. And here was what God did. Notice the confirmation. And by the way, this always takes place. Here's a spiritual principle you may want to write down. Write this down. Put it in errors because here's the sequence that always comes. It comes like this. Number one, commitment. Commitment. And then from commitment, draw a little arrow over to this next word. 
After commitment comes confrontation. And you can just check that all through the Bible. Make a commitment, there's going to be confrontation. Hey, right after Jesus was baptized, where did He go? Went to the wilderness. And what happened to Him there? He was tempted. That's exactly right. So there was a commitment. Next, confrontation came to Him in the wilderness. Draw another little arrow. Here's the next word in the chain. Confirmation. When you make a commitment, the confrontation comes and you stand strong in it. You don't give in. You don't bow down. You don't bail out. Once you have stood, then confirmation from God comes. What does the Bible say took place after Jesus had resisted temptation for 40 days and 40 nights? Sent angels and they ministered to Him. My goodness. But here's our problem. Here's normally what we do. We make a commitment that's good enough. Confrontation comes and we fight for about 39 days. And we bail out the day before God was about to send confirming angels to help us out. My goodness. Stick with the stuff. Confirmation always comes. And notice the confirmation that came as Joshua got up and they marched up to help these people to whom they made a commitment. Number one, the Lord communicates with His people. You get in the battle... And I promise you, you're in a great place to hear from the commander-in-chief. You know it? Because he has more at stake in this battle than we do. This is really about his name, about his fame, about his glory. See, isn't it crazy that the times it seems that the Lord ministers to us the most deeply and the most intimately aren't in the good times of life? But it's in the battle, Miss Myra, isn't it? It's when your back's against the wall. It's when you're about ready to hit the eject button. That's when God begins to come through and give us confirmation. Notice what He did. He communicated with Joshua. Check this out. Look with me in verse number 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Here's Joshua. He got up. He's got the troops. They are marching down the road at 2 o'clock in the morning. You ever been up 2 o'clock in the morning marching? And you wonder, dear God, is He even awake this time of day? <laughs> huh? And probably in the midst of, in the course of his being obedient and a man of his word, God speaks to him personally. And here's what God says. Notice what he does. It's interesting because there's a spiritual lesson in this for us. Notice, we sometimes want God to give us a new word. Something is mind-blowing. But God doesn't operate like that. You know what God did? He simply repeated the same old truth he'd always been telling to Joshua. And son, listen to me. The same old truth is very, very good. It just is, huh? Check out what he said in verse number 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. No one of them shall stand, not a one of them shall stand before you. Here's why I say this was by God's design. Because God took all of the enemy in the southern region, and you know what he did? Instead of Joshua having to go to each one of those cities, God just brought them all together. Put them nice and neat in one little package. And he said, now look, there they are. Go get them. It's kind of like, I remember listening to Jeff Foxworthy one night. And he said for Christmas, his mama gave him a portable safe. <laughs> you ever seen one of them little portable safes? You can put valuable stuff in it and pick it up and just carry it with you. He said, wow, mama, thanks a lot. And he said, by the way, my burglars will appreciate it too. You just put all my values in a nice suitcase for them. <laughs> 
You see, that's what God did with those five kings. He just brought them all together, put them in a nice package, and said, Joshua, you don't even have to walk to their house because I brought them to you and you just go ahead and take care of them. <laughs> Pretty cool, isn't it? Confirmation. And the course of being obedient, God gave him confirmation by communicating with him. Man, there's nothing that will steal your soul against the enemy like a word from God. Check out number next. The confirmation comes because the Lord communicates with His people while they're in the battle. Verse number 10 tells us that the Lord confused the enemy. Look at verse number 10. The Lord confounded them before Israel. Confounded. Just go ahead and write confused. That's what it means. They were confused. They were in disarray. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know from which way they were coming. And, 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 and they were so discombobulated and confounded and confused that they really were no challenge for Joshua and his crack troops who'd marched all night. They just went in and ate them up. Now look, that's what God can do. God confused the enemy. Isn't that cool? Check out number next. What else does God do? Well, He... He communicates with His people in the battle. God confused the enemy, verse number 10. And then, for lack of a better way of saying it, verses 10 through 11, the Lord concluded the battle. Hey, if God does all this, don't you think God's going to take care of it? Look at verses 10 through 11. Now look, there's, there's a little bit in our English versions a grammatical issue with these verses, but in the original language there's no, there's no issue at all. Because here's the issue. Who is the subject of all of these verbs? And you can read a different version and the translators will make a different subject. For instance, the NIV makes Israel the subject of these verbs, but that's not it. Because in the original language, the number and the person of the verb is included in the verb. And all of these verbs that I'm going to point out to you are in the singular person. That means it can't be Israel, it can't be a group, it had to be Yahweh. So look at verses 10 and 11. Notice what he did. It starts out real good. The Lord confounded them before Israel. Now look, here's why I like the New American Standard. People ask me that all the time because it's a very wooden translation. It will follow those original languages almost to a T, whereas other ones won't. They'll just kind of do some crazy stuff with the, with the grammar. So check out verse number 10. And he, who is that he refer to? Yahweh. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. Now look, and pursued. Who pursued them? Yahweh. Yahweh was running them down like a dog runs down a deer. He ran them down. Look, he pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them. Who struck them? Yahweh. Do you begin to get the picture of this? Oh, Joshua and his men were there, but they weren't near doing what God Himself was doing. Isn't that cool? Look at this. I love verse number 11. As they fled from Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, Yahweh threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died... And there were more that died from hailstones than those who the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Who wrapped this battle up? You tell me. Was it those men who had marched all night? Oh, they were there doing their part. But I'm telling you, Yahweh was the one who gave victory. You know, I've always looked at that and thought, man, how in the world could that be, men dying from hailstone? 
And then Heather Allen and I were in Fort Worth, Texas at Southwestern Seminary. I had just graduated. So we got us a babysitter and we were going out on the town to celebrate. So we went out to one of my favorite restaurants in the world. The name of it is Razoo's. While we're sitting in Razoo's, the tornado sirens began to go off. The skies turned dark. All the streets light came on. Hey, I'm telling you, it was vicious. Heather says, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to make a run for it. Mistake. <laughs> we got in her car and we started going and we noticed that all these Texans were huddled together over all the overpasses on the interstate. That was prime real estate. You could not find anywhere under the overpass to park. And just a little while it started hailing. And when I say hail, I mean it was Joshua type hail. There were hailstones falling out there. I tried to hide under an oak tree limb to no avail. Hailstones were falling. Heather, am I right? They were this big, falling out of the sky. They were hitting the top of her car, and I could literally see the roof denning in. They were hitting the windshield. They, listen to me. They beat the windshield in or out, to put it on your perspective. And look, hailstones totally destroyed her car. The insurance company looked at it and said, it's beyond repair, we can't fix it. Here's your check. Hailstones. And that's what the Bible said God did to those folk. He killed more with those hailstones than Israel did with the sword. So who was it that was fighting for them? It was our warrior God. That's who it was. Check out number next. i got to be done. Oh my gosh, what happened to my time? Hey, the Lord concluded the battle. Let me just give you these next two. The Lord controlled creation for them. Did you get this? Look with me in verses 11 through 13. What did God do, say these verses? The sun stopped. The moon stood still. You know, here's what we would say in, in our modern world. The earth literally stopped turning. Here's what Joshua needed. He needed a few more hours in order to finish this battle. And he said, oh God, help us out here. Do something. And God says, earth, halt in your tracks. And she stood still. And the sun didn't move and the moon didn't move until Joshua was done. Then she started turning again and she's been turning ever since without a stop. That's our great God. Now notice something else the Lord does and I'm done. Not only does He control creation. Hey, let me tell you something. Our God is able to move mountains on our behalf. He will. Because, well, just let me go on. Number next. And finally, the Lord comforts His people. Notice what the writer says in verse 14. And this is the writer kind of saying, man, I'm slack-jawed. I can't believe this. There was no day like that before it or after it when Yahweh listened to the voice of a man for Yahweh fought for Israel. You know what the writer's doing here? He's saying this is mind-boggling. But here's the thing. It gives me comfort in knowing that God cares about us. He listens to us. So what he's doing is he's really giving people motivation to pray because God listens. God listens. Man, is that comforting or not? And I want to tell you, to know that our great God knows, cares, and listens makes me want to say like David, who am I 
that you are even mindful of me. Because I'm a worm. But nonetheless, God listens. So that ought to comfort us to the point that ought to make us want to bombard heaven with the request that we have that bring honor and glory unto Him. Hey, facing the facts of the fight, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this Christian life is going to be a fight if we're doing anything worthwhile. But hey, the good news is God is in it with you. And our great warrior God is able to do whatever it takes in order to bring victory to His people for His honor and glory. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would minister it to your people at Grace Church in Bonifay, Florida. And God, may we stick to the commitment that we have made even though confrontation comes because we know that confirmation and comfort are on their way. So God, I pray for those who are here today that you are calling them to a commitment. There are some that you are calling to be born again. I pray, God, that the Word of God has done its mysterious work in their lives and instead of fear, it has evoked faith on their part. And I pray, God, they're going to come to you in faith. I pray for those whom you're calling to a deeper walk of spiritual commitment and to another level in this war. Oh, God, would you call them to yourself today and just give them divine confirmation that it's really not dependent upon them, but dependent upon our great God who fights with us and for us. God, whatever it is you've said to us today, may we take comfort in the fact that you've communicated and that you hear us. And God, may it motivate us to move toward you for your honor and glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Dr. John is here up.